earlier that there will be a choir practice today at 5 o'clock for those of you involved at First of Sterling Heights. And then also we have some, some folders for your music. Uh, we talked about that yesterday at the practice. They're right up here on the front, so make sure you grab one today. And then um, we'll, we'll get that back from you after the, the cantata with, along with your music. Turn your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We have had the promise that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But how can we be sure that we will have no condemnation and that we will share in Christ's inheritance and, and enjoy all these blessings that come with being related to Jesus, adopted by God. How can we be sure of these things when there are two present, clear realities? The first is indwelling sin. How can we be sure that, that we can have no condemnation, that God's not going to judge us if we have sin inside of us still? as Christians. And and then the second reality is ongoing suffering. The first reality or potential problem to this promise of no condemnation, this indwelling sin was answered by Paul in verses 1 through 17. There is no condemnation despite our indwelling sin. And and the reason for that is because we now as Christians have new life. We have the spirit of God residing in us. And, and the, the recognition that that battle is going on, the fact that you, are, uh, that you despise your sin, that you hate it and hate its consequences, is, is a proof that the Spirit of God is at work within you. But what about the second question with regard to this promise of no condemnation? What about this ongoing suffering? How can we be sure that there is no condemnation when in the present we experience all sorts of sufferings when we walk through the valleys of suffering and death. And the answer to that question, Paul is going to address here in verses 18 and following. And the answer is that future glory is coming. That's how we can know. So the first question was, how can we be sure of this no condemnation with indwelling sin? Well, because the Spirit of God resides in us. How can we be sure of this promise of no condemnation when there's ongoing suffering? And the answer is, there is a future glory coming. This is not the way it will always be. Sin and suffering can be unsettling to us as Christians, but we need to put both of them in proper perspective. Now, you may be going through a present suffering and thinking, well, that's not very much comfort to me right now. But I pray that God would use this study today to encourage you, despite the present reality that you you are experiencing the present reality of suffering. And so I want you to come with me, take a step back, and look at the bigger picture from God's perspective of what He is doing in suffering. Let's read our text together. I'll I'll read it. You follow along. Beginning in verse 18 and then going through verse 25. Romans chapter 8. This is the Word of God. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he already sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Here, Paul wants to show us that there is a a response to our ongoing suffering. And God has that response. And it is that we as Christians await final redemption. It's, it's described in several ways in this text. It's re- described in the glory that's to be revealed in us. It's described, as, it's, it's described as the revealing of the sons of God. It's described as final glory. It's, it's final redemption that we wait for. Christians await final redemption along with creation. Creation is waiting for final redemption as well. So, three points here that Paul draws out that Paul wants us to see in this text. First, future glory is coming and it's worth the suffering that precedes it. Future glory is coming for Christians and it's worth the suffering that precedes it. That is, that the suffering that you experience now, it is worth it in comparison to what you will receive. Verse 18. Last time we looked at several benefits of having the indwelling Spirit. That, that we have life now. We have service. We're able to serve God. We, we are able to be holy. We are sons of God. We, we have assurance of our salvation. We are inheritors. That is, heirs of God and co-heirs with Jesus Christ. And then He gave a final benefit in verse 17 of having the Spirit indwelling us. And that is that we suffer. And the reason that, that Paul does not exclude suffering from a list like that. You know, we, we have all these benefits. We like all those other things until we get to suffering. The reason he doesn't exclude that is because when the Spirit of God dwells in you, he ensures that you will suffer along with Christ. That you will experience the kind of suffering that Jesus experienced. And that's okay because Jesus experienced suffering prior to receiving the glory that he now enjoys. And we follow Him in that way. Now, it doesn't mean that we die on a cross. It doesn't mean that we necessarily will be killed for our faith, although that may be the case. But it does mean that we will experience some kind of suffering. We will experience some kind of suffering for the sake of Christ. The suffering of this life is not pretend. We don't just kind of wish it away or just pretend like it's not there. It is real, and yet it is necessary. Acts 14.22 says we must go through many tribulations, many sufferings to enter the kingdom of God. So in verse 17, part of having the Spirit indwell you is that you will suffer. means that that you will suffer as a Christian. But in verse 18, Paul wants to make it clear that suffering is worthwhile. Look at verse 18 with me. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory of that is to be revealed in us. So notice the the word there in verse 18 that starts the verse, 
for it connects us with the suffering that's promised. That is, when you have the Spirit of God in you, you will suffer. But but now let He wants you to see the Holy Spirit. I think wants you to see how that's connected to the point of suffering. It's not just that you will suffer, but there's a purpose in it. That it is worthwhile to suffer. Now you may be looking at your suffering, and you may not see you, you may not see that as a benefit. But but I think we need to keep things in perspective, because verse 18 says, when we take our present suffering and put it on a scale, where you have you know the balance scale, and you put suffering on one side and the glories that are to be revealed on the other side. You know what happens? The suffering of this present life is like dust on the scales. It's it's like nothing in comparison to the great value of the eternal glory that we will receive. This suffering, I think, includes some of what of simply being identified with Christ. That is, that that we will suffer with Christ. Jesus says, uh, the author of Hebrews says that we need to go outside the camp with Christ and suffer reproach for His name. So, so I think some of that has to do with our identity with Christ. That as people know who we are, they tend to ridicule us, maybe ostracize us, maybe physically persecute us. So some of that, I think, is what Paul is talking about in this suffering. But I think he's talking about more than that. And that is that this suffering, I think, includes everything that it means to live in a sin-cursed world. That is, the, the sickness that is common to man, right? Or, or the grief that comes from the loss of a loved one, the financial trouble, disease, death. I think what Paul's saying is, in terms of all those sufferings that you experience, you can look at all of those things. Put those all on one side of the balance scale and recognize that in, in comparison to eternity, do you see that in verse 18? they are not worthy to be compared. It's not even worth worth putting on the scale in terms of what you will receive, the glory that will be revealed to you. And so what that means is that all kinds of suffering that you experience are meaningful in light of what God is doing. And the reason that we can say that as Christians is because that we understand that those sufferings are only small strokes in the pen of our great artist, God, who's who's creating this big, beautiful picture. And those dark marks of suffering actually work into His bigger, more beautiful drawing. Or we could think about it like a tapestry. God's grace is being shown in a, in a powerful way even through our suffering. They are meaningful, the sufferings that we face. Now, for an unbeliever, that's not the case, is it? For an unbeliever, the sufferings of this life, the things that they experience like us, the grief, the illness, the disease, the death, the financial trouble, what, what are those things to them? They're meaningless and they're hated. And so we as Christians should keep our suffering in perspective with what God is doing eternally with our suffering. When we consider it in those terms, our suffering can be viewed like dust on a scale in comparison to the great eternal benefits that will come to us as we persevere. So what about your suffering? 
Do you see it in proper perspective? Can you say with Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18 that, that your light and momentary afflictions are producing in you an eternal weight of glory? Or do you say, this is just another bother. Why does God cause this? Why does God allow this? See, we, we can see those things in proper perspective because the Holy Spirit allows us to be able to recognize them. That they are, in terms of eternity, they are short-lived. They are temporary but in terms of eternity, they're also worthwhile. They produce in us something better. So how do we know that the future glory is far better than the present suffering? How do we know that this supposed revelation that's coming, this great glory, how is this supposed to be better? How do we know that it's better than our present suffering? Two reasons that we know it. And it's found in verses 19 to 23. Both creation and Christians yearn for, fi- for final transformation or final redemption. Both creation and Christians yearn for final transformation. So here Paul's going to say, let me show you just in terms of creation as a whole that creation is groaning for a time when all things will be changed, when it, they will be made right. Verses 19 to 22. Creation as a whole yearns for final transformation. And then in verse 23, Christians like creation yearn for that final transformation as well. So in order to see that creation yearns for this final transformation, we first need to to define what Paul's talking about when he's talking about creation, and then we'll look at creation's problem and its solution. So first, creation defined. Who is Paul talking about when he's talking about creation here in verse 19? For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. How would you define creation? Maybe you would say that everything that God has made, that would be a good definition, I think. Or maybe you could list out all the things that God created in the first six days. Uh, I think my uh, theology professor, Dr. McCune, has the most helpful definition that I've seen. That is that creation is everything that is not God. Everything that is not God. So, So is that what Paul's talking about when he's saying that creation waits eagerly for the revealing of sons? Very well could be just saying everything groans for the final redemption. And that very well may be the case. But notice in verse 23 that he says, and not only this, not only does creation groan, but we also ourselves, and then later on it says, we ourselves groan within ourselves. So not only does creation groan for this final redemption, but we also Christians do the same. So I think probably what Paul's saying in verses 19 to 22 is that creation includes everything that is not Christian in this context. So, so he's going to say everything that's not Christian and then Christians. So all that God has made that are not Christians and then Christians. So first, uh, everything that all that God has made that are not Christians. I think this includes unbelievers, mountains, bodies of waters, plants, animals, planets, stars. All of this creation is personified as a person. It's it's put together as a person that like almost like creation is a person. You know, creation itself, you don't walk around to different spots on the earth, put your ear down to the ground and hear it kind of groaning like oh. instead, creation is personified here. It's it's as if it's a person. It has feelings and emotions. And we shouldn't be surprised that the Scripture writers do this. The psalmists do the same thing, that the trees of the field clap their what? Clap their hands. Or the mountains break forth into song. Right? So it's just, 
a, a poetic kind of way or personification of the things that God has made. What is creation's problem? Why is it that they are groaning? Well, in verse 20, we see that they are cursed because of sin. Notice verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it. So in order for us to see creation's solution, what's going to happen, we need to first see the problem, and that is that that creation is cursed by sin. Paul's talking about the curse that came on the whole earth because of the sin of Adam in Genesis 3. The Greek word here in verse 20 for futility, do you see that there? The second line, the word futility, is the same word that's used in the Greek translation of Ecclesiastes. Now, Ecclesiastes was originally written in Hebrews, but when it was translated to the Greek, it used the same word futility. And do you know what that word is that's translated 39 times in the book of Ecclesiastes? What is it? Vanity. right? Or some, some other translations, meaningless. Futility. Futility. All is futility. Creation has been subject to the curse. And so do you see what Paul is saying here? He's saying even creation recognizes that apart from God's final restoration, everything in life is meaningless. Okay, now that key phrase is, apart from God's final restoration through Jesus Christ, everything in life is meaningless. That, that, that was what Solomon was trying to bring out in Ecclesiastes. He's trying to say, apart from God, apart from a proper fear of God, we look around and work and the gathering of money, relationships, they're all meaningless. It's only when we fear God and honor the King that we start to see meaning in life. And notice who's responsible for this. Uh, it's, certainly it's Adam, right? Adam was responsible for the curse because he sinned against God by eating of the tree. Genesis 3.17. But, but here Paul's saying something else in verse 20. Creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of, and then notice in the New American Standard, capital H, Him, referring to whom? God. And I think that's a good translation, that God, in some sense, is responsible for the curse on the earth. That is, He's the one who had the authority to put the curse on the earth. It's not that the earth said, hey, can you please curse us? No, they, they received it on behalf of God because of the sin that was committed by Adam. But despite this vanity, this futility, this meaninglessness, God did not leave the earth destined to eternal futility. The earth is not going to finally and fully decay. It's going to be restored, isn't it? Because Christ will come and God will restore the earth to what it was like in Eden so that all of it will be back to where it ought to have been. And that's when one of the child, one of the children of Eve, Christ, will crush the head of the serpent. That's when creation will be restored. So that's its problem. It is under the curse. But it's going to be liberated from those consequences. Verse 21, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So if we picture creation like a person, it's groaning. It's terrified. It hates its current condition. But it also has this hope at the end of verse 20 that it's going to be freed from the slavery of its corruption, this decay that it's experiencing right now. There is coming a time when creation will be freed from its present decay. And notice when that will happen at the end of verse 21. 
It says, from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, the future change, the future redemption, the transformation of this universe to where it ought to be is dependent upon the glory of believers. That is, the, the transformation that's going to happen on this earth to remove the curse and bring it back to its Edenic state will not happen apart from or prior to the transformation of believers' final redemption. And so what creation needs is not for all of humans to be destroyed so they can just be left alone. You realize that creation would still decay without humans being here. But what the creation needs is to be led to be cared for by human beings who are made in the image of God and who have been transformed. That, by the way, was our original responsibility, wasn't it? In the garden, Genesis chapter 2, you are to take dominion over the world and care for it. And so there is coming a day when 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 uh, mankind, that is, saved mankind, okay, that is, believers, will be redeemed. They will be changed. Their bodies will be changed. They will there will be no more sin and they will be able to care for this world in a way that it wasn't cared for before. You see, we have failed because of our sin and as a result, the curse has come upon the earth. When we are finally redeemed, after that time, the earth will be transformed. We will be redeemed. All the curse will be lifted from this earth. No more decay will take place and we will have abundant uh, agricultural ability We'll have abundant um, progress in terms of how we're able to care for creation. So the problem is that the earth is cursed. The solution is that it needs to be restored, but it has to wait for the final redemption of believers. Notice its current status in verses 19 and 22. Its current status is that it is groaning. Here in verse 19 it says, the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly. So you have both of those phrases, longing and eagerly waiting. And then in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth. So, so the waiting and the longing is described here by creation, the personified creation, in, in those terms. That is that as creation is under the curse, it is like that child who is eagerly waiting for that first present to open on Christmas. Or, or that sports fan who has a favorite player who's coming to the plate in the bottom of the ninth. He's just eagerly waiting, longing for the time when, his, when this will be turned around. And that's what creation is doing now in verse 19. It's looking for something to happen. It's waiting for something to happen. And specifically it is, verse 19, notice at the end of the verse, what are they waiting for? What is creation eagerly waiting for? The revealing of the sons of God. Do you realize that that in, in terms of tangible evidence, it's not clear who the Christians are and who the non-Christians are in this world. That is, you can't just put somebody through a scanner, give them some kind of a, a, a medical procedure to be able to determine who the Christian is and who the non-Christian is. You can't look at some uh, identification marker. That is, you don't, you don't just say, hey, can, can I see your wallet? I need to see all of your identification 
see if you're a Christian. But there's coming a time when it will be clearly seen who the Christians are and who the non-Christians are, who the believers of God are and who the, the, the people who are, are who have rejected Him. Right now, that's not clearly seen. And, and what creation is saying is there's coming a time when those will be divided. Right? Where God, we, we will know for sure who is on the Lord's side and who is not. And there's coming a day when that will be clearly revealed. Not just to us. We hopefully can see that in some sense because we understand what God is looking for. Although we can't know the heart, so we can't do it perfectly. But, but there's coming a time when everyone on the entire face of the globe and in all the heavens above and the earth below will we'll know who is on the Lord's side. There's coming a day when the revealing will take place of the sons of God and creation is waiting for that. It's described as eager waiting in verse 19 and then verse 22 is described as groaning and suffering. Notice this is not talking about like the groaning and suffering from a paper cut. Okay, like like I might get from, from my day job, right? But, but the pain here, notice in verse 22, the pain of childbirth. And the reason for this analogy is that it shows the severity of the creation's pain. Right? It shows how serious this pain of creation really is. It's like the pain of childbirth. But I think it also helps us to see that, that the pain of childbirth is also worthwhile, isn't it? Because after the child is born, the mother forgets the suffering of the pregnancy. She doesn't forget the suffering of the pregnancy, but, but she does forget it in the sense that it's, it's not, it doesn't trouble her anymore. Because why? It was worth it, right? It doesn't weigh on her. Because the joy of the product of that suffering far outweighs any previous pain. Do you see kind of the connection what Paul's making here? that the sufferings of this world, like childbirth, are not worthy to be compared with the joy that we receive from it. And that's very similar to what creation is doing right now. They are in a state right now. Creation is in a state right now where they are suffering like the pains of childbirth, waiting for that time when that baby will be birthed, so to speak. When that final joy will be revealed. And at that time, it will be worth it. We could say it this way. This momentary and light affliction of childbirth produces a lifelong joy of being a mother. Is that true? Those of you who have younger kids, was the pain of pregnancy and childbirth worth it? What about those of you who have grown children? Was it worth it? Was the pain worth it? You see, creation is in that state right now. They're going through the pains of childbirth waiting for that time when the final product is revealed. But creation is not the only one who feels the pain of the curse. We Christians do as well. And this, I think, is where Paul is driving. Verse 23. As believers, we feel the pain of creation. We, like creation, are in that same state. Not only is creation groaning, eagerly waiting, suffering, we too are doing that. And why do we groan? Because we have this indwelling sin and this ongoing suffering. Look at verse 23. And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. So, do you see what creation is waiting for? Creation is waiting for all the sons of God to be revealed. They're waiting for that. 
But we also are waiting for that. We're waiting for our final adoption as sons. Now understand that, that when you come to Christ, you are immediately adopted into His family. That's not going to change. But there is a sense in which you need to have that finalized. That, that there is still a, a time in which all sin will be removed from you. And that's still coming in the next life. And the reason that we deeply desire our final transformation is because we have been, been given a taste of what that final transformation is going to be like. We've been given a taste, haven't we, as Christians? That is, we have been given a taste of what the blessings of being in God's family is like. Why? Because we have the first fruits of that taste. What is that first fruits in verse 23? What is it? It's the first fruits of the Spirit. That is, we have the Holy Spirit of God in us. The first fruits, you remember in the Old Testament, or when it comes to farming, is that they would... They would uh, they would receive their harvest and, and the very first harvest was designed to be given to God. That is, the first fruits of their harvest was given to God so that they would say, listen, we don't know what the rest of it's going to come, but, but we have an abundant harvest right now. We're going to give it to you. The first fruits, we believe that you should be first place. And, and in doing so, we trust that you will, we will have an abundant harvest to follow. And, and we, in the same way, give like that. Right? We give of the first fruits of what we own. Because we trust that God will, will provide later. And, and God here is the one now giving the first fruits. God gives to us what a part of what we will enjoy for all of eternity. Do you see? We are going to receive this great blessing, this great redemption, and here's a down payment. Here's the first fruits of God's harvest for what you will receive as a Christian. It's the Holy Spirit of God living within you. And you get to enjoy what that is like now in this earth. He produces in us the Spirit, the kind of groaning that we saw last time that causes us to cry out, Abba, Father, in the midst of our suffering. And as a result, we, like creation, await for this time where we will be adopted fully and finally as God's Son. There is a sense in which I hope you recognize that our redemption is, we could say it in the past tense, we have been redeemed. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That's full and final. But I hope you also recognize that there's a sense in which our redemption is still future. Jesus said to the disciples in Luke 21, your redemption is drawing near. It's still coming. And, and that's what he's talking, Paul's talking about here, that we're waiting for this redemption that's drawing near. It's still coming. That is the full and final glorification of our bodies and souls which will take place just before the 1,000-year reign of Christ on this earth at Mount Zion in Jerusalem. Do you see that at the end of verse 23? We ourselves groan within ourselves waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of of our body. We're awaiting that, aren't we? And so we, like creation, are groaning. We're suffering. We, we, we don't like our current state in the sense that we know it's not complete. It's not that we're not content. It's not that we're not thankful in all things, or at least we should be. But it is that, that we are groaning in the sense that things are not as they will be. They are not as they ought to be in our lives. And so we await this final redemption. But I want you to see here in verses 24 and 25 that Christians 
wait for final transformation with hope. Christians wait for final transformation with hope. So first, future glory is coming and it's worth the suffering that precedes it. Then second, creation and Christians yearn for final transformation. And then here in verses 24 and 25, Christians wait for final transformation with hope. Paul's made it clear that that we groan with creation for our final redemption, our final transformation, our final glorification. And so that means that until that times, until that time comes, we are like creation. We eagerly wait. We're like, you know, when when your favorite president or presidential candidate comes to town and you see him coming around the quarter, you know, you, you have your eyes fixed on that person. And that's us. We are are looking for that final redemption. We have our eyes fixed on that. And so the sufferings of this world are, are, are not what overwhelm us. Because we have hope. We're looking to something else. We're not looking just to our circumstances. You see, this waiting that we have, this suffering that we experience, is not a despair-filled time of waiting. It's a hope-filled time. Look at verse 24. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it. You see, hope is always in something that we cannot see. But this hope is not just a wish like we do before we blow out the candles or a whim like I really hope that this person follows through on on what they said they would do. This hope that we have is a confident expectation based on the character and promises of God. We can be sure. that It's a sure hope, isn't it? But this waiting is not a despair-filled time of waiting. It's filled with hope. And these unseen future promises that God has for us, they don't lead us to despair and discouragement, but they cause us to hope in this future glory. And just like our initial conversion was an unseen reality, so is our final redemption. And so the implication is that we wait and we hope and we persevere. Are God's promises about your future glory still unseen for you? I mean, do you see all the blessings that you will receive? No, you don't. And I don't either. And that's okay. And that's why we keep waiting in hope for what we cannot see like the person in the parade waiting for the King to come. Because the things that are transient, that are passing away, they are they're just temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. 2 Corinthians 4.18 So how can we have confidence that we have no condemnation as Christians? Romans 8.1 How can we have confidence despite the indwelling sin and despite the ongoing suffering that we experience? We can have confidence despite our indwelling sin. We can have peace with God because we have the Spirit of God living within us and leading a fight against that sin. But we can also have confidence in this no condemnation despite our suffering because we are at the same time realizing that everything in this life that is connected to our suffering is passing away. It's temporal And yet everything that is unseen that is promised for us in the future is eternal. It will last forever. So, two implications for us this morning. Number one, suffering is temporal. 
suffering is temporal. If you are deeply bothered by your suffering and you can't quite get it to square with this promise that God has for you, there is therefore now no condemnation. Well, God, why am I suffering? If you can't quite get it to square, then let me just encourage you to consider Jesus and how He looked at suffering. At what point did Jesus experience full and final glory? When was it? It was after He died, wasn't it? That is, Jesus had to go through suffering first before He experienced glory. Jesus didn't look around at the dark clouds of suffering and say, man, these promises of God about my exaltation are worthless. He didn't say that. Instead, He trusted that God would follow through on His promises while at the same time recognizing that those sufferings must first take place. Friends, we are in that time right now. A time of suffering. And we will be all the way until we die. But there is hope at the other end because that suffering is only temporal. It's only designed for this life if you are in Christ. Number two, suffering is worthwhile. Suffering is worthwhile. For a mother, is the joy that that child brings worth the pain of childbirth? For Jesus, was the glory of heaven worth the temporary broken fellowship that He had with His Father? That is where God God judged Him for our sin. Was it worth the suffering that He experienced on the cross? For you, is your future glory and your final redemption, is it really worth it? Is it really worth spending your life in temporary suffering for the next 10 to 80 years? Is your suffering worth it? If you're going to become an heir with Christ, then you must first suffer with Christ. Look at verse 17 again. If children heirs, also heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Suffering first and then glory. You see, the frustrations of present suffering can cloud the image of future glory, but God is faithful and He does not turn a blind eye to your suffering. He does not ignore your suffering. He's not deaf to the cries for help. He has not forgotten you. He has not abandoned you. He has not become handcuffed to helping you. God is using your suffering. He is in your suffering. He's accomplishing it to, to bring about good in His program and even in your own life. You may not see what He's doing, but He is working for your good and His glory. And so let me finish by encouraging you with Paul's encouragement from verse 1. Yes, you do have indwelling sin. All of us do. And it will be there until you die. Yes, you cannot get away from ongoing suffering. It will not be erased until the next life if you are in Christ. But despite your indwelling sin and your ongoing suffering, I can assure you on the basis of God's Word this morning that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of Christ has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Let's pray. Father, we are amazed at Your care for us. 
And we want to confess that we have not seen our suffering as well as we ought to have. We have complained much. We have questioned You much. We are are prone to turn from You even in times of suffering. And yet Your love has kept us close. You have pursued us. And You've allowed us to see, even as You have this morning, that our suffering is only temporary. And it is worthwhile. It's worth the final glory that will be revealed. And Lord, we await that time with creation. We groan for that day when we will be freed from these bodies and minds of sin. We long for the day when creation will no longer be under the curse, where the lion will lay with the lamb, where agriculture will be abundant. And Lord, we wait in hope and anticipation for that time. We know that that cannot come until we are first redeemed finally. We know that that cannot come until Jesus comes again. He comes to make everything right and and restore things to where they ought to be. Lord, we long for that day. We pray that, that You would bring it upon very quickly. Send our Savior to redeem us fully and finally. And until that time, give us the faith, the hope, to be able to see what we cannot see. To, to be able to believe what we cannot see. And that is that You are going to make all things right. You will reveal who are the sons of God. Lord, give us strength, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.